0: Thank you so much uh, for coming out on a busy evening to join me for this large group therapy event. <laughs> um, I, I also say that um, you know it, it's always uh, it's always a, a, a good idea if if, if, you, if you're talking about shame, um, at some point you're going to be able to say something to just about everybody in the room that will make you feel bad enough that by the end you'll really want me to write you a pres- prescription and I'll be happy to do that for you. <laughs> I'm, um, uh, the things to uh, know about me uh, right off the top are that um, I uh, live in Arlington, Virginia where I um, have been for the last uh, 25 years and um, I've been married for 31 years and as we've said, I have a daughter who's 27 and a son who is 24, and uh, for a living, I practice psychiatry. And um, I live in Washington, D.C., so it's a pretty good gig. (laughs) Money, 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 yeah, no, it's just, no, that's not true. It is true, but it's not true, really. (laughs) Mm. The, The topic for the evening is the question of shame in a world of good and evil. And what we can learn about that from what neuroscience has to teach us. But also I want to provide a caveat before we start to talk about the brain and neuroscience and my field in particular, which is what we call interpersonal neurobiology. The first thing I wanna suggest is that whether it was me or anyone else who is speaking to you tonight, the first thing that would be important for you to know is that whoever is speaking here comes to you with a particular of uh, what we would call plausibility structure. Whoever the speaker is is going to come to you with an understanding of a particular notion of how we tell the story that we think we're living in. You see, everybody here in the room, whether we know it or not, is living believing that you occupy a particular story in the world, that the world means a certain thing, that it either is or isn't going someplace, and we're all living trying to figure that out and live in the story that we are believing that we're in the middle of. And so um, for full disclosure's sake, in, court, in, you know, in order for you to be, be aware of this, I want to um, let you know kind of where I'm coming from. Now not every speaker who would, uh, that you'd listen talk about shame would necessarily tell you those kinds of things, but I want to let you know that so that when you hear me allude to other things later on this evening, you'll have some sense of where that's coming from. And so um, where I'm coming from is what what I would consider to be what I call a biblical anthropology. What does that mean? Um, That means that I live believing that I'm in a world that has been created by a God and the God of the Bible and that we would read about in the Bible and that God is a relational God and that in the course of events of human history that God has both made us but also recognizes that As much as he loves us, we have trouble loving ourselves and trouble loving each other. And so in the course of time, Jesus appears in history and he lives, he dies, and we who follow him believe that he was raised from the dead. Now in this day and age, that's actually a bit of a crazy thing to believe. I acknowledge that. But, but, we, but we who follow him, but, we, but, but I'll tell you, but we who follow him believe that that's true. And I, and I would say this, kind of like Kierkegaard said, if, you, if you've read much of Kierkegaard. You know, Kierkegaard said, I'm, I'm trying to become a Christian. I'm practicing become, trying to become a Christian. And so we, uh, I, I practice trying to believe this, because believing this for me personally is not always easy to do. But it also means that uh, as part of this story, we believe that history is going somewhere. And that what we are doing now is that we are practicing for a world that is coming. And that is a world of goodness and beauty and joy. Not just about the renewal of all things about the physical world, but the renewal of all people as well. And that's the story that I think I'm living in the middle of. And so I just want to say that much Uh, in order for you to be aware that as I refer to and allude to these kinds of things over the course of our evening together, that um, you're not surprised, you're not caught off guard, and you're not wondering, like, well, where is this guy coming from, and what is he trying to, like, snooker me into thinking or believing? I know he's, like, the psychiatry does all those Jedi mind tricks. Who knows what's <laughs> happening to me here in the room? I can assure you I won't be trying to do anything to you, and we do employ Jedi mind tricks, but I'm not, not here tonight. <laughs> I would need to get you to sign a release of things, and, be, and I don't have the time to do that. So let me begin by saying this. We long, we long for a world of goodness and beauty. Who here in this room does not want that world? Who here would wake up every day and say, you know, I really hope that my day sucks today? <laughs> like nobody does that. We, lo- we wake up in the morning and we want this morning to be a morning, we want this day to be a day in which relationships work well. We want this day in which our work works well. We want the poor to be fed. We want the rich to be generous. We want good things to happen for everybody. Who doesn't want that? We long for that kind of a world and at the same time, all we have to do is open our eyes, walk off our front porch steps and see Like that world is not easy to come by. I want to start by saying that. That we long for a world of goodness and beauty, no matter whether you believe in God, I don't, I, I, I don't care. Like I don't know anybody who doesn't want that. That infant wants that. <laughs> but I want to say, next, I want to talk about my friend Steve, because you see, my friend Steve came to see me six months. After his 17-year-old son hanged himself. And Steve's world in that moment was not one of goodness and beauty. And so I want to talk about what it was like for my friend Steve to come to see me. Now Steve's story was one in which um, he was a brilliant, is, a brilliant scientist, and he had come to see me because he was clinically depressed, which isn't surprised. And when he came to see me, he said, first of all, I want you to know, I've read the literature. I know what I need. I need an antidepressant, and that's why I'm here from you. I don't really want to talk about anything that has anything to do with faith, to which I was more than happy to oblige and say, we don't need to talk about faith at all. We can just talk about your life. And he said, fine, I just really want an antidepressant because I know that I'm depressed, and that's what I need. And I said, I'm willing to write a prescription for you for your antidepressant, but I want to guarantee you, you need far more than Prozac. And like, we're not even going to talk about God. And so um, Steve was open to this because he was a scientist. And I said, look, the data is pretty clear that if you want your mind to flourish, there are certain things that you're going to have to be aware of in terms of like what your mind actually is and how it works. And then we're going to need to talk about what the problem is that you experience and why your mind's not working now. We psychiatrists, hopefully, we, we, we peddle in this thing called the mind. I don't know if you know that or not, that's, that's what we do, that's our work that we do. And so, part of what Steve's work entailed was him becoming familiar with what we mean when we say the mind in the first place. If I lose my mind, if I can't figure my mind out, if I'm confused in my mind, like, what does that mean? And so we began to explore notions of the mind as we've come to understand it from the lens of interpersonal neurobiology. And our working definition of the mind goes something like this, that the mind is an embodied and relational process that emerges from within and between brains whose task it is to regulate the flow of energy and information. <laughs> Do you get that? <laughs> right, so um, we're just gonna walk through that pretty quickly here. And uh, you know, um, We mentioned that we have books for sale. There's 44 of them. I'd like to take none of them home. (laughs) None of them. You can read about this definition in the book that we have for sale, but we're going to walk through it briefly because Steve needed to know this, and it's important for us to know this before we even talk about what shame does to it. The mind is an embodied process the mind is embodied it's important for us that your mind is not just your brain your mind is not just what you think your mind is what you sense what you image what you feel and what you do physically so we begin with recognizing that our mind first begins with our body because that's how we form we form in the uterus not first as a thinking agent we form in the uterus as a zygote And we move eventually from a zygote to this little uterus that comes, I mean, to to this little fetus that comes out into the world. As we say, every baby comes into the world looking for someone, looking for her. Everyone. And it never stops. So we are an embodied mind. Not just my brain, but my entire body. Where do I feel things? Where do I sense things? But I'm not just an embodied mind. I'm also a relational mind. My mind is an embodied and relational process. When you come into the world... 30% of your neurons in your brain are ready to go and do what they're scheduled to do. The other 70 to 80% are going to need the interaction with somebody else's brain in order for them to come online and do what they need to do. Newborns and infants need their caretakers in order for their minds to actually come alive and do what they're made to do. So we are both embodied and relational, which, oddly enough, as a follower of Jesus, when we read what we call our foundational texts, Some of you might have heard of a thing called the book of Genesis, where you read early in the book of Genesis these words. It said, And the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the earth, and he breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils. and man becomes a living being. We're dirt and we are breath. You see, all at once we see that our bodies and our relationships are the essence of who we are. Moving, forth, back and forth. My body interacted with my relationships at all times. Now I see, of course, for Steve, Steve was just depressed, and Steve wasn't aware that his body and what he was doing with that, or his relationships or what he was doing with that had anything to do with his mind. Because he's a scientist, and he thinks that he knows everything that he needs to know, and the depression is just this thing that you experience. It's not something that has much to do with what my relationships are. But then we suggest that it's not just an embodied and relational process, this moving, breathing thing. It also emerges from within and between brains. It's an emergent process, which means that my mind is always on the move. It's always growing. It always is a product of things that are, this this notion that my mind is greater than the sum of its parts. My mind, therefore, isn't just confined to me, My mind is affected by and shaped by everything around me. Everyone in this room, your mind tonight is being shaped by the fact that you're sitting in a room with a number of other people. As I said earlier today, if it was just you and me, just one of you and me here, that would be weird. Because, right, like, who would come? Like, I just want to come and have a conversation with you, Kurt. But I'm sitting in the last row. You stand up on the stage, and then we'll have an intimate conversation. No, like, your mind is already being affected by the people who are sitting around you. Some of you, you, you sense it because they're sweating really badly. We don't have any choice but to be affected by these emerging processes that are taking place all the time around us. And this has everything to do just with the fundamentals of physics. The fact that I live in a world in which I cannot enter a room without affecting the room. We learned this a long time ago with Mr. Heisenberg. And so my mind now becomes something more than just the thing with which I think things. It's this... Embodied and relational process that emerges from within and between brains, whose task it is to regulate the flow of energy and information. What's that mean? This energy and information, the energy, meaning all that takes place within my body, but also all that takes place between me and you. 70 to 90% of all human communication is nonverbal in nature. Those seven nonverbal cues, your eye contact, your tone of voice, facial expression, your body posture, your gestures, your timing and intensity of response. Those seven different things deliver who you are 60 to 90% of the time, every time you're interacting with somebody else. But here's the thing, you don't just non-verbally communicate things to other people, you communicate them to yourself. And in the process of doing that, I do so by virtue of light, wave, and photons. Did you, right, right, this is all about physics, right? This is about the energy that's happening between us. It's not just what's happening within me. My mind is communicating to you between us because of what I look like and what you look like and what you sound like and what I sound like. Imagine, imagine the impact that you have on the people around you just because you walk in the room. But how many of us really believe that we have that much emotional heft. I will tell you, you have far more capacity to change the room into which you walk than you can imagine. Steve was having a hard time believing that he could influence anything. And of course, he had the evidence for this because if he had had the power to influence anything, he surely could have stopped his son from hanging himself. One of the primary things that we talk about in science, of course, is the scientific method. And uh, if there are scientists here in the room, you know that the scientific method is one in which we come up with a question, a hypothesis. And then we test the hypothesis. And we test it again and again and again. And if certain results show up to be consistent, we then test this hypothesis in the form of publishing it. So that I'm not just testing it, but I now let other people who are out there in the community also test it. But in that scientific method, I'm the one who's always asking the questions, as the scientist. When it comes to the mind, One of the things that's very different is that although it's really crucially important for us as humans to want to know things, one of the most important features about the mind that we're often not paying attention to is the importance of what it means for us to be known by another human being. In Christian texts, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. He said, there are those who believe they know who do not know as they ought But the person who loves God is known by God. Now, he doesn't say, interestingly enough, he doesn't say the person who loves God knows God. That may be true, but that's not his emphasis. His emphasis is the person who loves God is known by God. Let me ask you this question. And this, again, has nothing to do with faith, it has to do with your life. If I were to ask you, could you give me the names of three people who, if I were to poll them, they could collectively tell me everything there is to know about you? Everything. They know your idle thoughts. They know your worst nightmares. They know your greatest fears. They know your deepest dreams and longings and desires. There's nothing about you they don't know collectively. Could you give me their names? That is a delusional statement (laughs) for which we have treatments. (laughs) I have a patient I was talking about earlier today, I call him Mr. Effective and the reason I call him Mr. Effective is because everything he does, quite literally, is effective. And if everything was so effective, then why is he, in his mid-40s, in my office, as anxious as he could be about who knows what? Until we started to talk about what was his life like growing up. And he said, I had two really loving parents. I said, really? Who was in charge of discipline in your house? You know, it's the standard next question that you ask us at any cocktail party, right? Who was was in charge of discipline in your house, right? (laughs) My dad, and that's why I'm drinking so much. (laughs) Well, he said, well, I guess it was my mom. And it went from, I guess it was my mom, to why was it your mom, to I guess it was because if my dad ever got involved, people got hit. And suddenly, you start to wonder, why is it that he's telling a story in which he believes that he was raised by two loving parents? Oh, this is the story that he tells himself. And you see, as we like to say, the things that we pay attention to are the things that we remember, and the things we remember become our anticipated future, and that's how the brain works. The things I pay attention to are the things that I remember, and the things that I remember become my anticipated future. And if I keep telling the story over and over again, that my parents are a certain way, then that becomes what I have to believe them to be in order for me to protect myself against the fact that my father was so brutal. But you see, here's the thing. When my patient sits, not as the scientist, but as the patient, he's not asking the questions, I am. And I'm asking him, who was in charge of discipline in your house? And when he says my father, who was, my mother, because my father was so brutal, He says it with a certain degree of embarrassment, and at the moment that he says that with embarrassment, he's also seeing me see him for the first time with compassion, because he hasn't told anybody this, who's able to look him in the eye and say, like, I'm really sorry that that was the case. And that's what happens when someone, in this case, my patient, has the experience of being known by someone else, when shame is not allowed to be in the conversation. Now, for Steve, there were other things that we needed to address because for him, he wanted to come and acquire information and acquire a prescription in order for him to take care of his depression. But I said, one of the most important things for you, Steve, is not just for you to come and discover what you can know about yourself. It's for you to come and have the experience of being known by someone else. And I want to suggest to you to allow ourselves to be known by someone else is a terribly frightening event. How many of us can think of, I mean, tonight's topic is shame, right? So how many of us can think of a moment in the last month in which we have genuinely felt some degree of shame? Raise your hand. Right, everybody, right. What about within the last week? What about like within the last 30 minutes? All right, now the next question would be, of those of you who'd raise your hand, who would like to be the three people to come up and share those things with us? (laughs) You see, this is the point. The very nature of shame is such that when I experience it and feel it, I can't tell you about it because the very act of doing so would require me to look at you. And to look at you activates the very thing I can't stand about what I feel and about what I feel about myself. To be known, to be revealed, to be exposed is a terribly vulnerable act. And I want to suggest to you, though, it is the only way that our brain knows how to be healed. Now, there are some other things that the brain tends to do. And so I said to Steve, you know, I know that you want to know things but it's going to be important for you to be known and so far remember we're not talking about God yet because we don't need to despite the fact that you know we've got all kinds of things in the biblical narrative that reflect this whole neuroscience chunk of data that would have been emerging over the last 15 to 20 years. And there were some other things then that we started to educate Steve about because Steve's a scientist and he likes to hear about this data. And here are some things that we come to learn about the way the mind works. A mind works in a most flourishing fashion, a mind flourishes when it does two things, when it both is well differentiated and when those differentiated parts are linked. And this notion of things being differentiated and linked comes under the heading in interpersonal neurobiology, comes under the heading of what we call integration. Integration is a word that is formally and explicitly used in my field of interpersonal neurobiology to describe any system, the mind being one, but any system. Clouds do this. Populations do this. Any system that demonstrates this combined set of features of differentiation and linkage. And what does that mean? What are we talking about here? Well, here's an example. If you want to listen to a choir... If you want to listen to a choir, you want to know that the four parts of the choir, each one is well differentiated. That the basses and the tenors and the sopranos and the altos each have practiced their part in such a way that their parts are well done. They're well differentiated. They know their parts extraordinarily well. But we also don't want to go hear Handel's Messiah or anything else if all we're getting are the sopranos, like outdoing everybody. Like that's not why I paid my money. I need to know that these people are listening to each other and that they're like actually allowing their parts to do the thing that they're supposed to do in concert with each other. I need to know not only that they are well differentiated, I need to know that they are linked together. I need to know that each of the parts is going to be able to hear the other part, to give the other part what it needs, and for it also to come to play when it's to come to play. And in order for that to happen, we need a conductor. We need someone else who is able to do that kind of work. And in the human mind, in the human mind, that conductor as far as our brain is concerned is located in the middle prefrontal cortex. And my middle prefrontal cortex is the place in my brain in which all of the other functions and parts of my mind that we're just gonna talk about real briefly, are regulated, are conducted if you will, are enabled to both be well Integrated, like well-developed, well-differentiated, if your memory's working, well-differentiated and linked together. You see, one of the things that Steve needed was to know that the multiple different forms of his mind's functions were not only well-differentiated, but that they were linked together and none of that was working for him. And we have what we call eight different domains of these differentiated parts. The first is that of consciousness. Are you awake? Are you alert? And are you tuned? Are you conscious? And one of the primary features of the mind of consciousness is that of attention. How well are you paying attention to what you're paying attention to? The second is what we call the vertical domain of the mind. And that has to do with the entire body from top to bottom. How well am I paying attention to everything that my body is contributing to this thing that we call the mind? The third dimension is what we call the horizontal dimension or between my right and my left hemisphere. We have right hemispheric activity and left hemispheric activity that do very, very different things. Then we talk about the domain of memory. The domain of memory. Now, you know, memory is a tricky thing Um, there are lots of different things that we can say about memory, but there's two things that we like to describe. And one is that you have what we call an implicit memory. An implicit memory is the kind of memory that works without you even having to pay attention to it. It's the kind of memory that you employed when you learned how to walk. Because most of us here didn't remember how to learn how to walk consciously. You weren't paying attention. You might not remember the day that you learned how to walk. You have just always learned how to walk. You've always known how to do that. It's the kind of memory that gets activated when we learn how to ride a bike. And once we learn how to ride a bike, then we can always know how to ride a bike. But it's also this kind of memory. A couple comes home one afternoon. They have a fight. And in the middle of the fight, the guy gets into his car and takes off. And we wonder, like, why are you doing that? It's not a very helpful tactic when you have a fight to run into your car and take off. Is that a plane flying over? I didn't know you had, I I, I didn't know that you had such a large airport here in Harrisonburg. (laughs) If you were to ask him why he went and got in his car, he might say, you know, I just didn't want to say something I would regret, so I left. You wouldn't find him saying, I think... I was having an implicit memory of what it was like when I was 10 years old and my father would come home drunk and angry and all I could do was go outside and get on my bicycle and take off because it was the only safe thing I had at my disposal. He's not just getting in his car and taking off, he's remembering in order for him to protect himself. That's an example of what we mean of how memory works. How many of us have the experience of our implicit memory running our minds? in multiple different times and places and ways every day, and we have no idea that it's happening. Explicit memory is the kind of memory that we can remember about like what I had for breakfast or certain facts. And the real question for us is how do we integrate our implicit and explicit memory? And here's the real key. Any of these domains that we talk about are most effectively integrated when we have securely attached relationships with other human beings. All these things, my consciousness, my vertical, my horizontal brain, my memory domain, all that depends upon what happens between me and other relationships, because I'm both an embodied and relational mind. And that leads us to the next domain of the mind, and that next domain is the one of our narrative You see, everybody here in this room, as we said at the top of our hour, everybody here in this room, whether you're aware of it or not, are living in a story of some sort that you're making up every day. And by making up, I don't just mean that you're making it up out of the blue. I mean, everybody wakes up every morning, and we live assuming a certain story to be true. Whether we're consciously paying attention to that or not. And how many of us wake up, and in the morning, the story that we're telling ourselves goes something like this. I should have done this, I should have done that. I haven't done enough of this, I haven't done enough of that. How many of us would call ourselves, don't raise your hand, perfectionists? Oh. Okay, raise your hand if you want to. <laughs> okay, sure. All right, I know, because like you all want to be honest, right? you just you're, you're like, oh my gosh, it's my opportunity for a therapy session, I'll just raise my head, oh, I'll, I'm, I right, no, like, mm. This notion of how we tell our story has everything to do with where we are. And you see, this was significant for Steve. And by now, Steve is willing to actually talk about some of these things because as a scientist, he can't deny the data that we're presenting to him. And when it gets to the story time part of our work, I said, so tell me what it was like for you growing up. And as it turns out, Steve's story goes something like this. Steve grew up in a home where his people were deeply committed people of faith, Christians, who loved him dearly. Steve, as it turns out, was a lover of science. His parents, as it turns out, were afraid of science. And so by the time Steve got to high school, and his parents and their anxiety about science was so disruptive for him that when he left for college he left every trace of faith behind. Because he was convinced that faith and his parents were the same thing. And he was also convinced that all you need to do is get the right answers to the right questions and you will be able to solve all of life's problems. And this is how he lived his life. Over and over and over again. The problem was, His science wasn't enough to keep his son from hanging himself. And as we started to talk about his story, of course, Steve, the way he tells his story, simply believes that his story with his parents is really about their faith. And then I pointed out to him, you know, i got to tell you, there's no such thing as faith as like this abstract thing. It's like, it's not like Steve, it's you and me are in the room and then Faith is sitting over here in the chair, right? Like you'd really have to be making stuff up to believe that. No. Steve, there's just, there's these relationships. And these are relationships with your parents and now, remember, this guy's in his mid to late 50s. And he has been living for 40 years. Angry, resentful, sad, And cut off from his parents. Telling himself the same story that they told him. Which is what you are interested in isn't okay. Science isn't safe. Science isn't okay. And you see the problem here for Steve was not science. The problem here for Steve was not faith. The problem for Steve was his relationship with his parents. But Steve isn't aware of the taxing effect that this has year after year after year after year on his neurobiology. You see, this isn't just about a man becoming depressed. This is about a man who year after year after year has to find a way to contain the afflicting affect, the afflicting emotion of distress and shame and sadness that he's been carrying around because of this experience with his parents. And here's the thing though, because he was a guy who lived in a, lived in a house where nobody came to ask him exactly what he felt about things. by that, I don't, I don't mean what he thought, I mean like what his emotional states were. He wasn't a guy who ever learned how to be curious about that himself. He never learned what it was like to be curious about his own inner state of affairs. Consequently, he was never able to become curious about the inner state of affairs of his son and consequently was not even aware to know how to ask questions of his son about what his son was feeling on any given day. Are you with me? And so you can guess that by now, the cracks in Steve's airtight argument against anything having to do with his story or about faith, or about God, or anything else, were starting to reveal themselves, mostly because he was listening to the science, because he was actually just listening to the things that we were talking about. And we moved then from his narrative to how he tells his story and the way we all tell our stories, right? We all wake up in, our mor- in the morning and like, we're going to repeat the story that we've been repeating for who knows how long and how much of our story do we live into every day that causes us to be worried about our story, that causes us to be worried about what, what's going to happen at the end of the day. We then went on to talk about what happens regarding the domain of state, like our minds enter into certain fixed periods of time in which we repeat certain models. When you get up and go to work every day, you enter into a particular neurobiological state of mind. When you go to play tennis, a neurobiological state of mind of that. And we have to recognize that most of life's distresses happen when we are transitioning from one state to another, but most of us aren't paying attention to this. And we then move from the state dimension to the interpersonal domain. The fact that I have all these things going on, all these different dimensions of my mind's activity. And as it turns out, so does everybody else. And the question is, what am I doing at any given time to be aware of how it is that my interpersonal domain is interacting with your interpersonal domain and we are affecting each other all day, every day? and that is gonna shape what my mood is like, that's gonna shape what my anxiety is like, all those kinds of things of which Steve was not paying any attention to. Now I said this to him, I said, you know, all these things that are so painful for you, one of the primary reasons that they are is because believe it or not, your biggest culprit is a thing that we call shame. You see, each one of us in this room comes into the world looking for someone looking for us. Each one of us comes into the world longing for a world of goodness and beauty. We long to create and make things. We long to be like our maker has made us to be. We long to be able to live in relationship like that triune God of the Bible lives. We long to live into a space in which people really are excited to see us when we wake up in the morning. But how many of us wake up and find that that's the world that we're living in? And I will tell you that if you're not, the reason that we're not is because of this thing that we call shame. Steve's main problem was not just that his son had hanged himself. Steve's main problem was what Steve was doing to himself in the wake of it. What is shame in the first place? Well, you know, um, anybody here uh, heard of Brene Brown? Anybody here, like, really close friends with her? You're probably, you're like, 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 we all know Brene Brown, like, because she's, every, you know, she's just, she's everywhere, right? So we all think that she's our best friend. She's one of our Facebook friends, I'm sure. <laughs> um, yeah. Can I, can I just say, like, you don't have that many friends, okay? You just don't, you don't, right? You're, nobody does. All right. So people say to me, like, what do you think of Brene Brown and her work? I said like, two things. One is, like, we could not be more fortunate to have somebody who's doing this kind of work for us right? It's very helpful. It's meaningful, important work. I said that's number one, but here's number two. It's really striking to me, given the interest that it has generated, you'd think that we were hearing about shame for the very first time in human history, given how like amazed we are at the data that she's talking about. 25 years ago, 27 years ago now, a guy by the name of John Bradshaw wrote a book called Healing the Shame That Binds You. And if you're older than 40 years old in this room, you might know about this and know that it sold millions of copies. It got him a long-standing spot on public television. And he was useful and helpful to hundreds of thousands of people. And why is it that with Brene Brown, like, it's like we're hearing about this for the very first time? And I will tell you, 25 years from now, we're going to need somebody else to do the same thing, because we will forget, because this is exactly how shame works. Now, if you want to read the clinical literature about shame, if you want to read about that, it's going to tell you some of the following things. First of all, shame is primarily a neurophysiologic event. It is something that happens to your body before it happens to anything else. When we experience it, whether we have someone yell at us or we're humiliated or we're neglected, a whole range of different things, when we experience it, primarily we experience it physiologically. We don't feel ashamed because we first hear somebody say something about us, consider that, and then feel bad. We feel bad immediately, and then we make up stories to help us make sense of what just happened. This is what happens in brain time. The mechanics of shame. If you read Alan Shore's work, a neuropsychologist from UCLA, the mechanics of shame are go something like this: that um, if you drive a standard transmission automobile, anybody here not drive a standard transmission automobile? It's okay, you can not ashamed. Everybody drives a standard transmission automobile. I gave this talk in Manhattan about three years ago, and I gave, I asked this question, and my wife said, "Kurt, like it, like like nobody drives cars, like." <laughs> Like, they they don't, like, like it's not not really helpful. Okay, there is a thing called a standard transmission automobile. And we need a gas, and we need a brake, and we need a A clutch, clutch. exactly. And if you allow your car to come to a stop without using the clutch, what happens? Right, and does it just stall? (laughs) Hey, honey, my clutch. Yeah, the car, yeah, the car just stalled. No, 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 the car stalls traumatically. <laughs> right? And I like I like four-speed Chevette, 1984, in the center of the intersection in town. The light goes through three changes cuz I can't find first gear. <laughs> Cars like lining up blowing on their horn. Like you talk about shame like I'm the master. We walk around being driven by a thing called the sympathetic drive system. Now, some of you have heard of the sympathetic drive system as being part of your fight or flight mechanism, which it is, but that's not the only thing that it does neurologically. The other thing that the sympathetic drive system does is that it is sympathetic with us in terms of our desire. So baby comes out of the womb and she or he is just going, 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 and they keep going. First... They're going for food, then they're going for the begonias, then they're going for the blonde in the back row, then they're going for all kinds of, right, we're just going, right, we're going, and we're in go mode, but at some point, somebody has to say what? Stop, right? Somebody has to decelerate the engine. The sympathetic drive system is like our accelerator, we, We just can't live in total acceleration. We have to be able to decelerate. We have to be able to slow down and stop. And when we are little, we need the help of our parents. And so parents will decelerate us by saying stop. We will apply a brake, and sometimes that brake is applied forcefully. Sometimes that brake is applied more slowly. Or sometimes parents just take the foot off the gas, right? Sometimes we just have to take the foot off the gas. That's another way for the car to decelerate, right? We don't just apply the brake, we just take the foot off the gas. Even if we have to slam on the brakes, if you drive one of these cars, you know that you can slam on the brakes, but if you follow quickly enough with the clutch, you won't lose the engine, right? The parasympathetic system is what is representative of the decelerating engine. It's representing the brake, and there are times in our world, in our life, when it's crucially important for us to learn how to say no. We have to say no to all kinds of things. I will tell you, we live in a culture that has a very difficult time saying no to much of anything. Now, again, back to the anthropology out of which I come. You know, um, you may have heard of the story of the Garden of Eden. You may have. And it's an interesting story to me because it's a story in which God plants a garden. And in the garden, he plants all these good things, And then there's this one thing that he plants to which he says to the first humans that are there, you may not eat of this thing. Now, it's interesting to me because if I'm God and I don't want people eating from something, I would say, hey, look, about 40 miles to the west, surrounded by a bunch of brambles, there's this kind of nondescript tree. You won't run into it for a while because you don't even have the wheel yet. So it's going to take a long time to get there. Right? But if and when you do, just don't pay any attention to it. It's nothing. I would, if I'm Adam, like, I, don't, I don't remember any of it. But no, God says no, and he plants it right in the center of his yes. Really ticks me off. <laughs> but think about how much of life depends upon our ability to be able to say no to things that are in the center of what we think is our identity. Think of what it means to be an athlete. If you're going to be a professional athlete, you have to say no to a lot of things that you'd rather say yes to. In order for us to be skilled at anything, we have to be able to say no and let that be as crucial an element of what it means to be loving as anything that we do that says yes. And that's true for the brain. But what does the clutch represent? It's not the question of do we need the gas or do we need the brake? We need both. What we need is the clutch, and the clutch represents... Highly attuned interpersonal relationships. Highly attuned interpersonal relationships. In order for us to learn how to regulate the flow of energy and information in our mind, in order for us to flourish, in order for us to learn how to be okay when things are not okay, I don't need you only to be able to say yes to me. I need you to be able to say no and be connected to me at the same time. I need to know that even when you're saying no to me, if you're my boss, if you're my teacher, if you're my coach, whoever you happen to be, if you're saying no to me, I need to know that when you look me in the eye and say that, you're going to understand why this is so disappointing for me to hear you say no. Steve had none of that. And see, here's the thing. This kind of automobile motif, if you will, is not just applicable to newborns and toddlers. Because these kinds of things about shame happen in the boardroom. They happen in the classroom. They happen on the court and on the field. They happen everywhere. Shame is ubiquitous. It's democratic. It's an equal opportunity provider. Here are some other features about it. Number one, shame happens early and often. It is possible for a person to experience shame as early as 15 to 18 months of age. You don't need to have language. You don't need to understand things logically or linearly why they work. That's all you need. You just need to have a fully functioning brain. Which means that long before our newborns and infants and toddlers are, having, are able, able to figure out like why they're ashamed, they're already sensing it. The second thing is, shame is neurobiologically disintegrating. We talked about that word integration. Shame does the very opposite. How many of you, if you ever felt ashamed, you feel like, gosh, I, it's, you feel at like your creative best when you're ashamed? Right? <laughs> How many of you feel able to think clearly when you feel ashamed? It's hard to do. You see, for Steve, he had been carrying around this certain shame his whole life, this sense that like, what he wanted... His desire to learn and live into science was like not okay. Like he was not acceptable. He was not okay. And he would blame this on faith. Faith had nothing to do with it, it was about relationship. It was left unrepaired. Shame is not just disintegrating, one of the first things that we do when we experience it is that we hide. We first hide, literally, physiologically. Like when you experience shame, you will turn your eyes down. You will turn your head away. Your shoulders will move inward. Your body will tend to curve over. Not unlike a dog. Congratulations. Right? We've seen dogs be ashamed. Right? It does not require any cognitive higher order of thinking for us to react to this. This is the automaticity of our minds trying to protect themselves against this emotional state of nausea. Not only do we hide, but we also tend to be very condemning about all this. Condemnation is a highlight of this. Steve was getting all this. Not only condemnation, but you know, shame is an interesting thing in that The highest volume of frequency with which we experience it, as it turns out, is not through the course of significant large traumatic events. It is truly shaming to have events of sexual abuse, sexual mistreatment, shaming to be in the middle of violence, shaming to be a whole range of these large events that are horrible. But the problem is that most of us think that because if we haven't had that happen to us, then shame doesn't really play much of a role for us. The reality is most of shame happens in the privacy of your own mind. When you wake up in the morning and it starts, I'm already up too late. I should have done this. I should have done that. I should have done this. I should have done Like it just goes all day long. It's like we have our own private shame attendant. Like you wake up and there they are, stand dressed and ready. And you're like you're paying their salary. They follow, you to the, they follow you to the mirror in the bathroom. And they're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> right, and it just goes on that, like for all day long. This is what we do. Here's the last thing I want to talk about with this. Shame in its isolation is not willing to let me turn to others for help. And as it turns out, what my brain needs more than anything else, what Steve's brain needed more than anything else, was somebody to come to find him. In this disintegrating state, two things happen. When I am in a disintegrated state, literally, neurobiologically, different parts of my mind's function, the things I sense, image, feel, think, and do. Those are all being separated from themselves within my mind while I am separating myself from you. Now it's a curious thing about psychotherapy. You see, because for Steve, he was becoming awakened to the idea that his problem wasn't just about a low serotonin level and it wasn't just about him needing, needing Prozac. It was about him needing reconciliation with his parents who were then in their 80s. It was about him living a life that's very different than the one he lived, isolated in his lab, but disconnected from any other relationships in his world. And so eventually one of the things that we did with Steve is that we invited him to step into a group process where the counseling work that he was doing was in the context of a group in which he's now not just gonna be known by one person, be me, but by seven other men. And one of the things that we said to Steve was, look, one of the most powerful things that you can even bring to the group, the group is not just about you getting something out of it. The group is about you bringing something to it, and it's not just about your insight or your wisdom or your capacity to fix other people's problems. What's really going to be helpful for you is your ability to be vulnerable. You see, counterintuitively, in order for shame to heal, the very thing we need is the thing that we're most terrified of. And that's the capacity to be vulnerable in the presence of somebody else who's coming to find us. And oddly enough, this is what the entire arc of the biblical narrative is about. It is about God coming to find us. It is about God in Jesus coming to us to tell us, I know all about this stuff that you think that you hate the most, that you don't want me to see, and that's the stuff about which I love as much as anything else about you. Tell me about that. You see, I'm more than happy to tell you the things and to show you the things about myself that I think you'll like, that I think you'll enjoy, that I think you won't, if you see them, you won't run out of the house with your hair on fire. I'm more than happy to tell you those things. What I don't want to tell you are the things about me that I hate the most because I know that when you see them, you'll leave. And you don't have to be a Christian to know that. All you have to do is have a pulse. But what's so interesting about the gospel message is that this neurobiological phenomenon that we call the mind and the shame that so easily disintegrates along those lines, those fracture lines of all those different domains of integration that we've talked about. You see, in the Christian story, we don't believe that shame is simply an artifact of nature. We believe that it's a vector, and that evil's intention is to use it to ruin you. Its intention is not just to make you feel bad. It doesn't care about you. Evil doesn't. Now, again, I'm revealing my particular worldview. We may not believe in a notion of evil, and that's our choice. I happen to, and I'd have to say that it's hard to be with Steve for very long and not believe in it as well. To watch his grief and his agony, and to watch his rage and his despair, and also to watch what happens to him when seven other men come to find him, when he thought no one would want to see or know about the father who didn't have what it takes to keep his kid from hanging himself. As a follower of Jesus, one of the things that we believe that Jesus has come to do is not just to save us from sin. You see, the story of the gospel is one in which we lead with a notion that God cannot believe his good fortune to be your God. That's what we lead with. But how many of us wake up in the morning aware that there's anybody who's that delighted with us? But imagine what it would be like for us to be in a space where we are regularly hearing from people in our deepest places of vulnerability, no less. In the places where we are talking about our vulnerability along every single neurobiological domain that we've described, my vulnerability about my story, my vulnerability about what I don't know that I don't know, what I'm afraid of, so so on and so forth. In those spaces, I'm hearing voices say, gosh, I can't believe that we get to be your friend. This is what the gospel tells us. Tonight, my hope is that in the course of our conversation, you'll be made aware of a couple of things. One is that not only do you long for a world of goodness and beauty and joy, you were made for it. Number two, in that delight that God has placed within us, despite the fact that that evil wants to ruin us by using shame as a vector to do so. God is deeply committed to using our own vulnerability as a way to promote community and then save us from ourselves. Who will be the people that will enable you to do that? I want to tell you that if we're willing to enter into that kind of a life, a world of goodness and beauty is what awaits us. You've been very kind, thank you very much.